This morning we are um, at the end of, almost at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. There is one more message after this, and we will conclude. And as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount, I think I'm the only person, I might be the person who feels um, not only I learned so much and I, I actually hate to see the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and today is nothing different. It's one of those passages has been always, uh, we've been grateful for um, Holy Spirit revealing the depth of wisdom and discernment for us. And today is one of and then we'll find out that this passage is for us in a very surprisingly insightful way. And over and over I mentioned that uh, throughout in our, uh, our uh, Sermon on the Mount series that it is really interesting to see that the very plain that we, at a glance, we think that we know what Jesus is saying, and then in the depth, there's so much more into what we could look at. The title of the, today's message is, Two Disciples, True or False? If you remember, we actually uh, wanted to end with uh, combine that uh, false prophet message, two trees, supposed to be included in that. The more I looked at the passage, it's actually a new paragraph, and there is a strength of this warning to each one of us. And as we face these radical choices, we need to hear the intentionality of Jesus' warning. Do you know that the main point of this passage and the following uh, passage and prior passage is the same. Words are not complete. The empty words are not enough. Obedience is a requirement. And in a, in a day in which we live, that so much of uh, Christian gospel has been drifted to, toward cheap grace. That all you have to say is you accept Jesus Christ and by just saying it, and then you will be saved. Of course, that in a way that it is a reaction to the legalistic uh, man earning the salvation, there is a reaction to that. But we need to look at this passage with fresh eyes. And there's one, something we must not do throughout this uh, several minutes in, in our receiving the message. You know, sometimes we think that, oh, this message is for so-and-so. I wish he or she could be here. No, this is for us. Do you remember a false prophet comes with disguise, sheep's clothing, 
But in, in, in heart, the false prophet is ravenous, ferocious wolves coming at us. Yes, it is ter- terrible and horrific to be de- deceived by anyone. But today's passage is actually turned to not only about false prophets that who are deceiving themselves, but to each one of us. To be deceived by someone else is one thing, but to be deceived by our own self cuts deep, deeper, isn't it? So in that in regard, let's read the whole passage together. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Some of the commentators mentions, if there is a passage they would like to read of somehow, this would be the passage. It's just so so sternly uh, scary passage. What if we stand before Jesus on the judgment day and thinking that, you know, in our own ways that we are so proud of being followers of Jesus and Jesus says to us, I never knew you. And note, note that at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is primarily referring to, of, of course, it, it could mean the entire uh, scripture, but primary, primarily he's pointing to what he has taught so far. And then, if you are saying you're calling me Lord, the profession itself Verbal profession is, itself is not enough. The challenge is, you need to apply it. You need to obey it. The words are cheap. So, although verbal profession is necessary, it is not enough for saving faith. And there are a few observations, once again, as we have done it before. Some of the obvious ones we need to carefully observe so that we don't miss the meanings of this uh, passage. So, number one, this verbal profession here has the right elements. The first right element is that it is orthodox. The faith is right belief, right doctrine. When you hear the word Lord, it may sound like, you know, the British uh, uh, Shakespeare language, Lord Montgomery or something. You know, in our uh, modern days of Sir, it may sound like it.
But if you look at Greek text, the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as Septuagint back in the day, uses the word curious. Curious is the word that is set aside to substitute Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So in a way that this is a right concept. Jesus is not just a sir, but he is the, the master and Lord of the universe Yahweh God, deity of Jesus. And secondly, notice that it is fervent. It's not a, a cold remarks, intellectual remarks of calling Lord, Lord Jesus Lord. It's Lord, Lord, passionate, fervent. And John Stott mentions that it, it is really enthusiastic Lord, Lord of zealous devotion to Christ. And thirdly, this profession is not private only, but it is public. How do I know that? In the verse 22 to 23, all these disciples are saying, did we not prophesy in your name? Forthtelling, not just the foretelling, so basically, in our language, didn't we, didn't we passionately preach the gospel for you in, my, in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Mighty works in your name. So this is a public thing. It's almost like a typical, like a well-meaning pastor who's very effective and successful. A missionaries. But we'll get to that. It's, it means also for every single one of us. The third right, I mean, second right element, uh, element um, uh, well, before we get to that, let's make sure that a verbal profession of faith is indispensable. It is utterly important. So in other words, every saved People will say, Lord, Lord. But not everyone who said, Lord, Lord, will be saved. That's Jesus' point. But Romans 10, verse 9 and 10. Because you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised from him, if God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In first century, when there is a persecution, and when Caesar was known as Lord, deity Lord, to say Jesus is the Lord, you're asking for trouble, persecution. You could be set on fire because of the, your, your profession eaten by lion and bears. Of course, in our days, because of uh, ISIS movement and, and that we have seen horrific pro, uh, 
persecution, something like that, even in the our days that you will be beheaded because of the, your your fa- confession of Jesus as your Lord. But I think most of us in Western world, our problem is, it's so easy to say Jesus is Lord. It doesn't cost anything. No one put a gun on your head. Confess that again, I'll shoot you. Then our confession will be full and complete. And there will be no counterfeit, nor self-deluding faith. So in other words, ours as a generation, we really need to pay attention to this. Rather than, remember Jeremiah saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And one of the dangers we could encounter in cheap grace is that everything's really okay. There's nothing that you need to make right with God. The fundamental preaching is done. No, if you look at Jesus, he continually warns against this self-deception. And did you know that more than heaven, Jesus has preached about hell. And more than anyone else in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, Jesus is the one who preached most about hell. And he is the Lord of heaven and he is the Lord of hell. The second element that is continually right um, is basically Jesus is looking at them and not really rebutting what they're saying, but Jesus is shockingly clear about his declaration. In other words, negatively, not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, positively, he clarifies, only the ones who, who does, who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. So if, you, if we are deeply ingrained with the cheap grace, is that, oh, we are not saved by the works. And as if grace is opposed to efforts that we shouldn't do anything to discredit what God has done. In reality, do you remember even the book of uh, Numbers? What was the fast, one of the most fascinating principles? What Jesus, uh, God, the Lord Yahweh said, I have given you this land. Go to Canaan. And the cheap grace, in our mind, okay, where to? And then we just walk there, everything's prepared, nice California king-size bed, and everything's there. And a lot of fruit and wine and just meat. That's our way of God giving us something. What does Jesus say? Drive them out. Inhabitants of the land of Canaan and take possession of it. You know what that means? Go fight. I'll be with you. Drive them out.
take the position of it. So oftentimes, when you come out to solitude and silence, we would use the word phrase that describes the principle of what, what it means to really have faith in sovereign grace. Be actively passive. Not passively passive. Or actively active. Which leads us to the first glimpse of conclusion here. We need to take a look at verse 22 to 23 again. Uh, But let's kind of summarize what verse 21 presents here. Two disciples here look very similar, yet contrastingly different in reality. Both have a right verbal profession, which is indispensable in saving faith. But the contrasting difference is in one's obedient life. One's obedient life. What does that mean? That we are continually obey and never make a mistake, never sin? No. And even First John, those who are born of God do not continually sin. The, the word is a present participle, meaning dwelling in sin. It's okay that there is no conviction, there is no guilt, there is no discipline. Continually do that. And you don't belong to God. But here, what, what, uh, in, in, a, in a similar way, the obedient life is continually looking to, to the word of God and submit. And not only you, our life is follows, but our heart, there is a seed of God desiring to please the Lord. Even when we fail. Do you have that? We need that fresh eyes this morning. To look at this passage as a warning for each one of us. Including pastors, elders, missionaries. The right verbal profession will be what we call it orthodoxy. Right doctrine. Right beliefs. Of course, we need to believe the right things. We cannot get away from uh, believing heresies or the incomplete truth or distorted truth like Mormons or Jehovah's Witness and thinking that we could get to heaven. But the saving faith not only embraces orthodoxy, orthodox faith, but orthopraxy, which means right living. What is a right living? That we continually obey and live in the direction of God-pleasing life. So self-deception, Martin Lloyd-Jones calls it, calls this as a unconscious hypocrisy. 
I like that. The hypocrisy is unconscious, unintended, because you're de- deceiving, because we are deceiving, self-deluding ourselves. The unconscious hypocrisy that brings us false peace is a result of self-deception. Verse 22, let's read that one more time. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We're going to focus on three phrases so that we could meditate for deeper insights and fuller uh, meaning of the passage. The first phrase is on that day. This is the first reality, true reality of Jesus' warning. That there will be a judgment day. For now, anybody could deny, anybody could refuse lordship of Jesus. But on that day, There will be no one whose knees are not bowed. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess Jesus is the Lord. And there will be no objection, no contest whatsoever. Because we are in full awareness. The holy presence of the ultimate judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 calls this, White, great white throne judgment. And there are two two types of uh, judgment. This is the first judgment. Everyone comes. And this is a scary moment. Unbelievers are eternally separated from God. As Jesus is judging each one of us. At the great white, sitting on the great white throne. And after that. There is a judgment seat of Christ. Those who are saved, Jesus will call on them, on each one of us, and give an account about how we lived our life. That's not a matter of salvation. It's a matter of reward. But let's focus on, on that day. During, throughout the Old Testament, you hear the, the, way, the, the day of the Lord. It's coming. This is the ultimate day of the Lord. Not just a momentary discipline or punishment of evil nation or the rebellious Israel, but comes as the ultimate judge of the universe who separates his people. And this is the day that every inner motive, as well as every, every deed, will be found out. And it will be revealed so clearly before Lord Jesus. So because of that, it is really the powerful moment that we need to think about. And honestly... I'm intuitive person, so anyone who pretends to have faith, I could, I could see right away usually.
But even even in my case, the detective, uh, the the really the kind of obscure things is that the heart of people. Did the person really pretend? When did he or she turn from the genuine faith? I do not know. And I think that that confusion and obscurity is much to do with because that person did not know either. Because of the self-deception. So here, the warning from Jesus himself. People of God, there will be a judgment day. On that day, we will stand before God. And we will find out, we will be find out whether our faith is saving real faith or counterfeit pretending faith. The second thing is a phrase many will say. And this is one of those obvious statements, but we kind of glimpse over. Jesus said, on that day, many will say, not some will say. In other words, there will be a shocking moment for a lot of us. Because many will be found out as self-deceiving, self-deluding people. And notice that Jesus actually intentionally chose these three remarkable spiritual gifts and ministry. The first one is Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Preaching of the word. And did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? The first question that comes to our mind is that, how could they do it? Or is it real? Or was it faked? Like Jim Jones' case. I, I think it's all, above, all of the above. But to Jesus, it doesn't matter whether they do it in a really truly powerful work of God as somehow given to like a Balaam, prophet of Balaam, or Judas Iscariot. You know, two by two when they're sent, sent out and did the ministry on the, uh, in the name of Jesus, Judas Iscariot might have done wonderful job even casting out demons. Or it could be the work of Satan. It could be manufacture of a human deception. Some kind of a elusive illusion of, of the human work. It's deceptive, deceptive work. It does not matter to Lord Jesus. No matter how impressive and powerful their spiritual gifts and charisma, personality, popularity, 
and the powerful ministry. These are false disciples. And we need to hear these this morning. Because by their own assessment, they are true disciples. They, they sacrificed much of their life in Jesus' name. But on Jesus' declaration, they were false. Third and last phrase. Is I never knew you. This third reality is that Jesus will reject those who disciples, those disciples who have a counterfeit faith by self-deception. Would you note that Jesus' declaration is not about their activities, as I mentioned, the validity of their their powerful ministry, but it is about their relationship, personal relationship. With the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, would you also notice that Jesus' declaration is not, You never knew me. And sometimes we would say that, right? You didn't know me back then. But if we think about the, uh, even in our days, let's say, you know, any any celebrity that you think you know because they're on t- television all the time, and some of you guys study about them and know about every details about their lives, and then you, when you meet them, you, you could act like that, that person might say hi back to me. Yeah, we might have known that person so well, in certain degree. Well, that person is, who are you? I don't know you. Okay, the, the, the word knowing here is the Hebrew concept of knowing. When Adam knew Eve, this intimate relationship knowing, right? Sexual relationship. Or the knowing the person was not a, just an informative. Actually, Jesus is... God himself, who knows everything, who's an omniscient person. But it's not a matter of information, but it's a matter of relationship. The fearful words of Jesus to those who misled themselves in counterfeit faith rather than true saving faith. Is I never knew you. It is really stern warning for all. So let me take, uh, before we do application, let me take this, kind of take few steps closer to where we are. We might think we know Jesus. And along with many people, we might say, we might not say 
in your name I preach the good sermons, uh, cast out demons, and do the mighty works. But it is in the, in the same vein, we could say to validate our faith, Lord, Lord, did we not serve with all our hearts for the homeless people? Did we not go on a short-term mission? Did we not gather for home group study? Did we not even pray for others fervently? Did we not volunteer to serve the refugees? And did we not serve at the worship team, serve at the uh, children's ministry, set up and break down, and sacrificially gave our time to serve the church? Whatever we think that we, this could validate my life. Oh, did we not come to the prayer meeting on Saturday? After all, it's 7 o'clock. I don't get up 7 o'clock Saturday morning. I mean, to get there by 7 o'clock. Another, another thing that maybe some of you haven't gone through the Bible study and in a quiet time, including me. Lord, I know how to exegete the passage. I know how to teach others what the passage is saying. And I could read a pretty good commentary on some passages. And my quiet time passage, quiet time sharing is quite popular and insightful. And at that, Jesus could say, I never knew you. Could you hear my heart? This is not to make us feel bad and feel guilty and, and in some sense heavy, have a heavy uh, moment of time and during our worship service. Not at all. The urge is to look at the reality of our heart and our relationship in the right path, which is the narrow way, rather than easy, wide way. Are we fighting for joy in God? Um, am, I, am I reaping the harvest of my, my obedience in fruitfulness, bearing much fruit and fullness of joy? And the back of our mind is cheap grace mentality again. Oh, I'm not saved for that. Because of that. And looking at my friends, they seem to enjoy their Christian life so much. Why do I have to? You know, I, I, after all, I think our church is too intense on some things. I'll be the first one that we have so many, so many ways that could be done differently. But this is our application of living a life, of obedient life. Do you have an orthodox faith? And I challenge you, are you living an orthodox living? 
Do you have a right living? Is your heart continually linger around pleasing the Lord because you genuinely desire that? That's obedient life, not legalistic life. When you are convicted by the Spirit or by Scripture, do you resist it thinking that I'm okay? At least I'm not like so and so. And Jesus at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, you learned a lot. But let me tell you, there is a fork of the road. There are choices, radical choices you need to make. Will you take saving faith that may cost you everything? Or will you take counterfeit faith and all you have to do is say it? Oh, I long for my faith to be real. Well, you know what? My confession, even if I go to a pastor's meeting, and I know who's faking it, I know who's real. Who's drinking the fresh water from the Word of God, and who's feeding himself on his own, who's struggling with their own sin, vulnerably examining their heart, or who's doing Ministry as a part of job. Because I get affected. When I, when I am sitting with the people who are real, or the real faith, not only I feel re- encouraged, and then not only I see the, this is the real joy. Living water is there. I want to quench my thirst with that. But at the same time, I feel so challenged. Oh, I need to, I need to get up and spiritually stay awake. And if you don't get anything from this morning's message, get this. Jesus' call is personal. Come, my love. Walk with me. Draw clean and living soul-quenching water from me. I will give you rest. I will teach you how to live. And this is the best way and most joyful way to live life. Let me tell you. Do not be deceived by the quick fixes of the worldly life. Or quick fixes of Christian religious life. Know the real thing. So even before application I could say. In our quiet time, if we do not enjoy what God is speaking to us and quenched by His presence with us, there's something not right. We need to seek help from our brothers and sisters. It is not a mental exercise. Because if the God is real and living God, our faith will be impacted by that. I don't mean every day when you open the Word of God, you will be so joyful and feeling with that. And that will be ridiculous to thinking that, you know, in our relationship with our wives and husbands, 
Every talk we, we are having is just one of those uh, romantic, your eyes are beautiful, and uh, you know, I love the way you f- I feel your arm, and your gun is so big. <laughs> Isn't it true that deeper intimacy comes when we deal with some hard issues and then all of a sudden that heart issue is resolved, we go deeper. There's a depth of limitless ocean of, ah, I thought I knew my wife. But this conflict resolution opened up in such a way that I don't know her that much at all. I love to know her. I love to know him. When, when we open the scriptures, it is the same way. The passage is difficult, not, not only difficult to understand, but it, it's just bothersome. It, it just doesn't sit with me well. And as we are contemplating who Jesus is, who Christ is, who Holy Spirit is, who Almighty God is, we begin to be shifted in our perspective, to God-centered perspective. And in consequence, we become much more intimate, wiser in his presence. Let's summarize our two applications this way. Number one, we are to pursue saving faith by embracing both right confession or right profession and right obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Be sure to have a right verbal profession, right doctrine, orthodoxy, and also be sure to have right living as an obedient disciple, orthoproxy. And James 1, verse 22, says about self-deception. But be doers of the word, And not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. In verse 23, 24, he expounds it this way. The one who reads the scripture and doesn't do it is not, it's like the one who looks at the mirror and something is already seen, but you don't do anything about, forgets what what he looked at. Number two, we are to examine ourselves so that we may not be deceived by ourselves. Let's examine our motives by asking ourselves honestly. And once again, I think that my free fall decision from my previous ministry and the, the beginning of new church plan like this could not have been done Unless I did my soul work. By that I mean, I start lifting every rock and examine my life. my life, And then it was very painful. Because I feel disgusted by my hidden motives. Ulterior motive mixed with good motives. And another way to look at it is examine our hearts. 
before God, submit, submitting to the Spirit's prompting. Sometimes we don't see everything. Search my heart, O oh God. And that's why we need silence and solitude. Second Corinthians 13.5, uh, beginning of the verse says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Paul is writing to the Corinthian Christians who are saved, who are, who, whom he called saints in the Lord. But his exhortation is examine your heart so that you are in the faith. Not faith only, but particular faith, the faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And we are to test ourselves. I mentioned uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones a few times, and, and I would highly, in conclusion, uh, I'm quoting this, but I would highly recommend the studies in the Sermon on the Mount. And Martin Lloyd-Jones is a collection of his sermons during 1930s or 40s or something like that. Quite insightful, but it's not just an informative, uh, insightful things, but it is challenging. I, I feel... So grateful for his words on this passage. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, It is possible for a man to preach the gospel of Christ in an orthodox manner, to mention the name of Christ, to be in, in doctrine, and to be zealous in the preaching of the word, and yet really to be doing it whole time for his own self-interest and his own glory and self-satisfaction. The only way to safeguard ourselves against that is to examine and scrutinize ourselves. It is painful and unpleasant, but it has to be done. It is the only way of safety. A man has to face himself squarely and ask, why am I doing it? What is the thing that, in my heart of hearts, I am really out for? If a man does not do that, he is exposing himself to, be, to the terrible danger of self-delusion and self-deception. We must take time to ask ourselves these questions. For one of the greatest dangers is to the soul is just to be living on our own activities and on our own efforts. To be over busy is one of the high, one of the high, high roads to self-deception. People of God, let's not assume that our heart default mode is godly and desiring for God. And desiring for godly things. Let's know that because of the sinful nature in, our, in us. That it drifts away. And the heart of a man is desperately wicked. Who could understand it? Jeremiah 79 says. When was last time you sat before God? Speak to me, Lord. Even the things that I feel like confident about, 
in terms of my motive, my heart is white, plain sheet of paper. Speak to me. That posture is more valuable than eagerly doing things on our own, isn't it? Our society will con- continually tell us, even to pastors, oh, you're okay, just keep doing it, just do it. Make things happen for the glory of God. In the midst of it all, I need to think about, why am I doing this? My inner motives will be revealed before God. And people, when we seek God's guidance, He will guide us. And even this coming uh, month, and there is another Solitude and Silence Day, for that reason, to be in your presence, there is a fullness of joy. And also, I want to be guided by you. I want to be real. I would rather safeguard myself against self, any self-deception, thinking that there is a false peace, the peace, but and yet that peace is false. May God lead us. And may God reveal His will to us in mercy and guidance so that we could be joyful Christian in there. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for uh, your message and warning to me. Uh, And thank you also for warning to our church. And uh, we see it now that even this regard, uh, the way we live our Christian life with the vision of uh, our, the way of the cross is swimming against the current. And teach us to see the value of self-examination, not introspection. To be guided by you and to really seek in our pure motive, continually surrendering ourselves to, for, to, for your glory and the fullness of our joy. We anticipate this year and this coming uh, fall kickoff and beyond that our joy will be uh, full and complete because there's a real transformation going on in our church. And thank you so much for answering many prayers about that. And we pray that you will use us for your glory in the coming year. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.